0: This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. The morning of May 18th, 2003 broke cool and crisp on the placid waters of Lake Memphrey Magog, a freshwater glacial lake that straddles the international border that separates the state of Vermont with the Canadian province of Quebec. Yes, it's a unique name, Memphrey Magog, and we'll get to its origins in a moment. But on that morning, a fisherman named Jean Grenier was preparing for his day's work as he drifted in his small boat near the Three Sisters, a cluster of islands near the deep water of Memphrey Magog on the Canadian side. Now, the name Memphrey Magog is from the native Algonquin language and translates to basically big water with the word Memphre meaning large or abundant and magog referring to water. The lake is fed by a nearly 500 square mile watershed or drainage basin on the U.S. side and it empties into the Magog River on the Canadian side. Mr. Grenier was about to cast his first line of the day when he noticed something reflecting the morning sun from below the surface of the lake, very near his boat something big. Then he heard something break the surface of the water behind him. Whatever this thing was, it was larger than his boat. He turned quickly, just in time to see an object as it disappeared below the surface. For a full three minutes, Jean Grenier watched, almost frozen in fear as this, this creature circled his boat. Too scared to start his small outboard engine, Grenier was considering the distance to one of the islands that make up the Three Sisters. He could easily swim the distance if he had to, but wasn't sure if this incredible beast would allow him to. Maybe it thought he was food. Then, just as quickly as it appeared, it was gone, leaving a massive wake as it headed south for the shallow waters of Vermont. Mr. Grenier counted himself lucky. He knew what he had encountered. He had fished this lake his entire life. But still, the first time you see the monster of Lake Memphremagog, it could be a little unnerving. Welcome back to The Devil Within. I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. You're listening to The Vermonster. First off, I apologize for the cheesiness of that title, but I couldn't help myself. So my favorite part, indulge me for a few minutes as I share some facts about the great state of Vermont that I learned during my research for this episode. The first one, and I'm pretty sure I'm in the minority on this, is that Vermont was not one of the original 13 colonies. Look, given its location smack dab in the middle of colonial New England, I just always had it in my mind that they were an OG colony. Oops. So Vermont is bordered on the south by Massachusetts, New York is to its west, and the entire eastern border is New Hampshire. Vermont's northern border is actually an international border with our friendly neighbors to the north, Canada. The reason I discovered that Vermont wasn't a colony back in the day is because it was a disputed territory. Both New York and New Hampshire wanted this truly majestic land. And finally, in 1777, Vermont said screw both you and declared herself the independent state of New Connecticut, alias Vermont. And that's how they would remain. They participated in the Revolutionary War, they paid their taxes, had representation in the new Congress, and were eventually granted statehood upon ratification of the Constitution in February of 1791 as the 14th state. Today, Vermont is the second least populated state in the Union, trailing only Wyoming, and its most populous city, Burlington, has the lowest population of any state's most populous city. I'm getting the impression that there aren't a ton of people in Vermont. In fact, For the sixth smallest state in land area, there are only 70 people per square mile. That simple fact that so much of the land in Vermont is undeveloped means one thing, forests. Thousands of square miles of pristine forests, millions of acres. In fact, 78% of Vermont's land area is forested. And that fact in itself is astonishing when you learn that by the end of the 1800s, nearly all of Vermont was deforested to supply wood for steam trains, paper mills, and building materials for the rest of New England as the region entered the Industrial Revolution. Also of note is that now and for the past 200 years, the vast forests of northern Vermont and southern Quebec supply the world with a unique and really delicious product, maple syrup. It's a tremendously lucrative export for the region. True, pure Vermont maple syrup is 12 times more expensive than oil. A barrel of oil is around $50. A barrel of syrup is more than $1,200. When a bumper crop is produced, the excess is sent to massive storage containers that serve as a strategic reserve for the lean years. That's right there's a global strategic reserve of Vermont maple syrup. And, as you might have guessed, when there's that much money in play, there's bound to be some lawlessness. In the case of maple syrup, it's an outfit out of Montreal called the Federation. I'm not kidding. It's the maple syrup mafia. There was a Netflix show about it recently. It was crazy. And the Federation is no joke. They control pricing and distribution who gets to sell and who doesn't, and they don't seem to care about something as silly as an international border. There are allegedly a series of safe harbors secreted among the shores of Lake Memphremagog, Magog, where Maple Mafia boats illegally transport their golden elixir into the states. But Vermont, obviously, has their own thriving maple syrup business, right? Why do we even need illegal imports? We don't. But sometimes the strong arm out of Montreal sends a message to U.S. producers of maple syrup. You can be successful, but not too successful, eh? Sorry, that was was wrong. You can be successful, but not too successful that you cut into the Federation's profits, eh? Case in point, back in 2013, The Federation allegedly severely curtailed U.S. production in northern Vermont in order to force local distributors to buy Canadian syrup illegally. A Vermont candy maker in desperate need was caught buying several tanker trucks of illegal syrup and the case blew the lid off the Federation's influence in the States. That might answer the nagging question in your mind the next time you're at Trader Joe's And the maple syrup seems like the most expensive item in the entire store. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Best advice I ever got working with a writing partner was this. Having a partner doesn't mean you each do half the work. It means you each do all the work. And the end result is a richer, fuller story. The right relationship doesn't always mean the easiest relationship. Sometimes the best relationships require the most work, but the results will be a richer, fuller experience that will last. And therapy can be the best place to work through whatever challenges you're facing with your current relationships. And it can be relationships at work, with friends, or, of course, your romantic relationship. The right therapist can help you forge the necessary tools for dealing with the important people in our lives. Honesty, coping skills, boundary setting, I have personally benefited from therapy since I was in my late teens. And as a result, I can proudly say that my relationships, while far from perfect, are stronger and more fulfilling than I could have hoped for. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, convenient, and designed to fit your schedule. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DevilWithin today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com/slash H-E-L-P, devil within. Lake Memphremagog is hardly the most famous lake in the state. That distinction goes to a massive body of water shared with Vermont's neighbor to the west, New York. Lake Champlain takes up fully two-thirds of the border between those two states. The massive lake lies in a valley, comprised of Vermont's Green Mountains to the east and New York's Adirondack Mountains to the west. The lake drains northward to the St. Lawrence River and is connected to the Hudson River to the south by the Champlain Canal. For more than 12,000 years, Native American tribes have inhabited Vermont. At the time of the first European encounter, the Abenaki and the Mohawk were the dominant tribes in the area. In the 1600s, French colonists claimed Vermont as their colony of New France. Then the British arrived with far greater ambitions. In 1763, after being defeated in the Seven Years' War, France relinquished all lands east of the Mississippi to Great Britain. But the Native American tribes of the area would remain for generations, and it is from those proud Abenaki and Mohawk elders That the first accounts of a serpent-like beast in the depths of the big water reached the European settlers. Twice the size of a man, at least, with a tail even longer. Horns on the head and continuing down the spine like a dragon. Wait, horns like a dragon? Actually, yes. There are tons of species of snake and lizard that have horns on their heads. Not sure about fish. Well, there's the Cowfish, but that's a saltwater creature and nowhere near the size of the lake animal we're talking about. But the sightings have been consistent. Stories passed through the generations of Native Americans who turned to the big water for the abundance of fish and would regularly catch sight of the serpent through the settlers who found themselves at first skeptical and then terrified of the beast that took the nickname Memphrey. Or simply, big. As the years passed and the area was settled, small towns began to pop up along the shores of Lake Memphrey Magog. The trout fishing was excellent year-round and provided a stable facet of the local economy, as well as a reliable safety net for the lean years of maple syrup production. But just as consistent as Memphrey Magog providing a bounty of fish from her bosom, so were the sightings of her mysterious child, Memphrey. Going back to 1871, a publication entitled Treatise on Geography explored the possibility of the existence of a prehistoric species who, through successive generations, has called Lake Memphrey Magog home for millennia, similar to prevailing theories concerning the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. Jacques Boisvert, a crypto Draconologist from nearby Quebec has made a career out of studying Memphrey. He's appeared in dozens of news reports and television specials recounting incredible stories of locals and tourists alike that have had encounters with the elusive beast. Cards on the table here, in case you were wondering what a crypto draconologist is. Well, drachonology is a subdivision of cryptozoology That specializes in lake monsters, sea serpents, and other marine cryptids. And the title was coined by Jacques Boisvert himself, for himself. He was early in his career investigating Memphrey when a local monk suggested he separate himself from the broader field of cryptozoology and focus in on the marine cryptids only. He came to regret the designation Draconology, as many people, upon first hearing the title, thought he studied dragons and didn't take them seriously. And then he'd say something like, no, no. Nothing as silly as dragons. I study sea monsters. In the summer of 1997, Daniel Long was on vacation with his wife. They were enjoying a beautiful day fishing on Lake Memphrey Magog. Dennis' wife was recently gifted with a compact digital video recorder. Remember, this is the late 90s and we were still more than a decade away from everyone having something like that right in their pocket. And she was happily documenting as much of their vacation as she could. So, when Dennis spotted something strange and really big in the water just a few yards from the boat, his wife started recording.
1: My wife was videotaping at the time, just uh, as she tends to do quite often. And we noticed the wave, uh, she immediately zoomed in on it. Uh, we probably saw it for 10 to 15 seconds before it uh, seemed to disappear. The object, whatever was causing this, seemed to uh, submerge again. it's a very short clip. That's weird. That's too weird. Uh, it definitely wasn't a log. It was, it was moving too quickly. It was uh, an animate object. There was something, to me, something was below the surface, moving, producing that wave. Uh, I I can't speculate whether it's a fish. Uh, It would be a large one if it was, and it wasn't normal fish behavior that I've seen swimming below the surface for any great length, Uh, so so I I, I don't know, I don't have a good guess.
0: You can easily find this clip online, and all snarkiness aside, it's pretty wild to see. There is obviously something enormous swimming through the water just below the surface. I mean, it's leaving a wake like a small boat would. As Dennis was sure to mention, it wasn't a log. Logs don't have propulsion, and whatever this thing was definitely did. So what was it? You can hear it in his voice. He was a little shaken and genuinely had no idea what he had just witnessed. He didn't mention anything about horns, but... But, as you could see in the video, the thing never really broke the surface of the water in any way that would allow anyone to see details. He did say, if it was a fish, it would have to be big. Now, I'm not trying to solve the mystery of Lake Memphrey Magog here, but I do have a thought. The Asapenser oxyryntius. Oh, Jesus. The Asapenser oxyryntius. There's zero chance I pronounced that correctly. But it's a species that first shows up in the fossil record 100 million years ago during the Upper Cretaceous period, and today includes 28 different species of what we commonly refer to as sturgeon. Just give me a minute here and maybe Google a picture of a sturgeon. It kind of looks like there are horns running down its back, right? Not on the head, I admit, but it certainly looks prehistoric and almost dragon-like, especially If one were to be skimming along just below the surface of the water and now what about the size of the thing as reported by daniel long whose account is easily the best eyewitness version we have because it comes with video proof we hear him saying if it was a fish it must have been a big one okay admittedly it was news to me that sturgeon typically grow up to 10 feet in length or more 10 feet That would account for other sightings where terrified fishermen would claim they saw something the size of a horse. Oh, and the biggest sturgeon ever recorded? Over 23 feet long. Think about that. Imagine encountering a 23 foot long animal in a lake. You'd probably think it was a monster too. I would. But before we all get carried away, With the veracity of Daniel Long's eyewitness report, he did make an astoundingly strange statement right there at the end.
1: And it wasn't normal fish behavior that I've seen swimming below the surface for any great length. Uh, So I, I don't know. I don't have a good
0: guess. Swimming beneath the surface of the water for a long time is abnormal behavior for a fish. Isn't that exactly normal behavior for a fish? I don't know, maybe he was still in shock. The bottom line here is that sightings of Memphrey continue to this day. On average, there are three encounters per year, with the occasional spike of 10 to 15 in a busy year. In the spring of 2000, a retired police officer spotted a large wake on the surface of the water of Memphremagog from the living room of his house. It stood out because to him it seemed like there must be an invisible boat. Such was the size of the wake, and that whatever was causing it from below the surface must be something enormous. And then he saw it. From a distance of about 100 yards, he saw a serpent-like head that broke the surface of the water and splashed down like a breaching whale, causing a tremendous disturbance on the surface and creating a loud clap that he was sure could be heard clear across the lake. Now believe it or not, this behavior has been well documented in sturgeon and the reasons for it are unknown. Mating ritual, help with spawning, maybe communication, really no one knows. So is Memphrey just a huge sturgeon from a bloodline that produces exceptionally large specimens, feeding on the abundance of trout in the lake, occasionally Breaching the surface for reasons unknown and scaring the shit out of fishermen? If so, wouldn't it make sense to believe that at some point in the last few hundred years, someone would have hooked one of these beasts and we'd have our answer? But no one has. So what gives? Thanks for listening. Please follow The Devil Within wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can follow us at the Devil Within Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Until next time, stay safe out there. The Devil Within is a Cloud 10 media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within,